0: What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Recently, on the Winging It podcast, Vince Carter and Annie Finberg sat down with NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry and recording artist Rotimi. This week, 2017 first overall pick Markel Fultz joins the show to talk about living up to expectations and working his way back from injury in the NBA. Make sure to check out Winging It on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: show part of the ringer podcast network presented by major film media thanks to yola tango as always for the intro music this is our second podcast this week i'm in los angeles and we decided to squeeze a podcast in with the oscar-winning director morgan neville Uh, we made ugly delicious together season two released today on netflix we made breakfast lunch and dinner he's done abstract on netflix he helped make the taylor swift documentary on netflix He made the Mr. Rogers doc, the commercially most successful documentary of all time. And he won an Oscar for 20 feet from stardom. And his whole sort of catalog of films that he's worked on, I think are just tremendous. And they're the kinds of films that will make you a smarter, better person. And I'm so honored to get to work with him because he's just one of my favorite people in the world. He is unbelievable. I love him to death. So we wanted to do sort of a, pre-opening diaries. Would you say this is a pre-opening diaries? It's just under the gun. It's a pre-opening diaries, right, It's Isaac? It's a,
2: both a pre and a post, because you guys do talk about season one retrospectively, okay. and then also looking forward to season two.
1: A pre-post, pre-post. opening diaries just of an Ugly opening. Delicious season two. Yeah, uh, The episodes, we go into a little bit about the baby episode, vertical spit cooking, steaks, and uh, Indian food. Check it out. It's out today. Really proud of it. I uh, want to get to three quick topics. The new thing we're trying out, courtesy of Uncle Bill. I had uh, dinner last night at Hutong. I'd done the Colbert show. And shout out to the entire team of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Chris Licht, and the entire production team. They are just the smoothest of operators and incredibly generous with their time. And they have the best like green room snacks. But um, after that, I wanted to treat my team to dinner. And we had gone to Hutong. We, none of us had gone there. And it used to be, um, what was it, Le Cirque? And I don't know why. I think I had a a, a desire to eat Peking duck because it is one of my great pleasures in life. And I don't think there's a really great place to get Peking duck. And I think I found it at Hutong. And Hutong as a name is... They're not really in Beijing anymore because they're refurbished and it's more like a Disneyland version of Hutong. But when I was in China back in 2002, they're like clay brick houses, probably like 600, 800 square feet. And people would live there and also have restaurants. And there's a whole history to Hutongs. I won't go into that right now. But this restaurant is called Hutong. It doesn't look anything like a Hutong. <laughs> but um, it serves Chinese food, dim sum, which I thought was really good. And I thought everything was really good. Like the Mapa Tofu was very good. They had great pea shoots. It's a restaurant I'm definitely going to go back to again, uh, mainly because I thought the Peking duck was very, very good. Is it world-class? Absolutely not. Is it the best in New York City? I believe it is. And they're not doing the contemporary ways to eat Peking duck where you might have some sugar and different kinds of condiments. But I thought the skin was really delicious. The other good Peking duck that I had is in Las Vegas. We opened up again in the, in the Palazzo and uh, there's a Mott 32 there, which is a Hong Kong chain and they have a really good Peking duck as well. And I'm, I'm grading this on the curve because the Peking duck in Beijing and a couple of places in Shanghai are just so extraordinary and done at a whole different level. I think that Mott 32 in Vegas has a really good Peking duck. And for New York, that would be my go-to place, Hutong for the Peking duck. It's 85 bucks. I think it's a great deal. So I will definitely be going back there again. And MOT32 also, they have a, uh, if you go there and you're not going to go to Major Domo Meat Fish, try to eat at MOT32 because they have this classic Sichuan dish of boiled fish or braised fish in a clear spicy soup with green peppercorns, Sichuan peppercorns, and pickled mustard greens. Uh, I don't, the name of the dish in in Mandarin is uh, eluding me right now, but it should on paper be a horrible version of that dish because it's like a Cantonese version of a Sichuan classic. And usually those are kinds of fusion dishes that I would normally be allergic to, but it is one of the best dishes. I think it's the best dish I've had all year in America. So if you haven't had that version, go get the classic version and compare it to this because it's a I think it's a wonderfully strange take on a dish, and it's the kind of newness that can only happen when you combine things that normally shouldn't go together. Really terrific dish. Uh, The other thing I want to talk about was hand sanitizer. I know we've got the coronavirus thing going on. The quick, easy way to do it if you can't get Purell because it's like not anywhere is just do a ratio of rubbing alcohol and aloe vera. And you can find those uh, recipes on the web. The question is, is can you find rubbing alcohol right now? Because those seem to be gone, but you don't need to wait to get Purell. But I'm not an expert in this. All I can encourage everyone to do is wash their hands as much as humanly possible. Um, The last thing I wanted to talk about was baseball season. Quickly, Isaac, do you give a shit about baseball season at all?
2: Uh yeah, I mean I watch the Dodgers, you know. Yeah, you're from LA,
1: but truly, do you really care
2: about Major League Baseball in general? Not really. Yeah, right. No.
1: Like, is it the Clippers or the Dodgers? And the Dodgers are an amazing team.
2: The Clippers for sure.
1: Would you take mediocre Clippers over world class, like level Dodgers?
2: (laughs) I mean, I've I've grew up with the mediocre Clippers, and I cared more about them than the Clayton Kershaw Dodgers. So, uh, I, I would probably take the Clippers, but at the same time, the Dodgers look pretty interesting right now. So.
1: I don't know if I'm going to do fantasy baseball this year. Ooh. Big life big, big uh, lifestyle, lifestyle change, yeah. It's a real time commitment to be good at fantasy baseball yeah. and a rotisserie league is a real time commitment not as much anymore as basketball. Basketball <laughs> fantasy takes quite a bit of time, but baseball to me is something I genuinely care so little about right now and I think it's because of the cheating scandal. Mm. It just really fucking left a horrible taste in my mouth.
2: Like, about the whole sport? Not just the Astros, just Just the the
1: whole sport. I just... It just sort of bums me out, and I think a lot of it is if they had a real apology... And you know what's fucking crazy? If I have to agree with A-Rod, who basically commented (laughs) on it, I was like, man, things are fucking crazy here, because he basically said, I paid the biggest fine in the history of Major League Baseball, I was suspended, and I deserved it. And... You know, I realized what I had done, and, and he did everything in his power to sort of repay back to baseball what he took, and he owned it. Right. And whether people forgave him or not, I don't know. But, like, I respect that he, like, talked about it. You know, I know people took the pull quotes out, like, how could this guy be talking about the Houston Astros? But I think what ruined it for me is no one from Houston actually is accepting the, their mistake. Yeah and i don't know why but it just rubs me all the wrong way
2: do you think it's because you're such a competitive person and the sanctity of competition matters to you like it's not a meritocracy if you can just cheat right
1: yeah i don't know i mean i saw trevor bauer who's on the cincinnati um reds now in preseason and this is like one of amazing things he basically was telling everyone i'm throwing a fucking number one i'm throwing i'm giving you a fastball mm. fuck you you know And, like, I thought that was awesome, and that's the kind of sort of individual sport that we need, like the individual, like, persona. But for the life of me, the Houston Astros cheating scandal sort of ruined my love of baseball, which was waning to begin with, and certainly been replaced by the NBA. Like, my increase in the NBA, obviously Hmm. hanging out with all you ringer nerds, has, (laughs) has increased exponentially, and there's only so much space one can have. And if I have to choose pouring myself into something, it's going to be NBA. Like Luka and Zion played last Ooh. night. What a game. Incredible. Overtime. And NBA is, weirdly enough, everyone complains it sucks right now because of the three-point shooting, but I find this season to be incredibly compelling, don't you?
2: Yeah, and I mean, as a Clippers fan, it's, it's extremely compelling because the Clippers have a chance to win the title. But overall, the league, I think, after Golden State quote-unquote broke up even though they're mostly injured but KD going to the Nets and uh, LeBron and AD in Los Angeles with the Lakers Kawhi Paul George with the Clippers there's a lot more parody in the elite class of the NBA and it's there's a lot of stars also there's a lot of young stars there's a lot of John Moran is fucking awesome to watch
1: Zion is just much must I love Lonzo Ball right now what the fuck's (laughs) going on with the Pelicans (laughs) You know, yeah, Brandon Pelicans Ingram are. looks like he's so high all the time. <laughs> you got to agree with me there.
2: Yeah, but I mean, he's he looks high, but he does not play like he's high.
1: Man, his game looks great. I, I just think the Pelicans are just the funnest team to watch. And I know I'm not saying anything new.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, they have a bunch of compelling young stars. And uh, Zion himself, I think it is He's just so must watch because of how physically impossible
1: he looks like that dunk yesterday when he did the 360 uh-huh. spin. Yep. He really jumped far away. It was. That's wow. usually a layup for most people. Yeah. And I just love his humility. And I'm just a Giants Zion fan. And he's just like, remember, I'm 19 years old. Anyway, I didn't want to go off topic. I just wanted to talk about my hatred of baseball right now. And hopefully that changes because I do like baseball. I don't talk about it too much, but I mostly love playing fantasy baseball because you get to reconnect with friends over America's pastime, but um, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know where it's going to go from here, and and I hope as the season progresses, people from Houston, namely Jose Altuve, becomes more contrite and uh, gives a, a real genuine apology, Yeah, because they couldn't have fucked it up more, and I love Houston, it hurts me, anyway, those are my three things, this will go back to normal programming in two seconds. Here is my conversation with Oscar winning director Morgan Neville. <laughs> um, <laughs> with Morgan Neville, creator, co- we've we worked on Ugly Delicious and Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, Oscar winning filmmaker. And someone I can consider a good friend because we've worked together for, what, a few years now? Four yeah, years? Four five? years. Yeah. And tomorrow, we're f- recording this in Los Angeles, um, March 5th, Thursday, March 5th, tomorrow, or I'd say tonight at midnight, really, depending on where you're at, uh, season two of Ugly Delicious. No,
0: Pacific Standard Time. Oh, is it Pacific yep, Standard Time?
1: Midnight, Pacific Standard Time, ah. because live around the globe. So, you know, you've... Yeah. you've, you've I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> So 3 a.m. East Coast time, Um, and we recorded this. Oh, we've not recorded. We filmed this about last year around this time, and yeah, we filmed. We actually wrapped a year ago this
0: week. Pretty wild, because I think the last shoot we did was Hugo's
1: birth. Oh my god! Yeah, (laughs) it was. (laughs) It was, and this was his uh, first birthday, March first.
0: And then we, we edited and finished it, um, end of
1: summer. Um, yeah. A lot's happened. A lot's (laughs) happened. Um, the best way I've been describing Ugly Delicious to breakfast, lunch, and dinner is that BLD is sort of like the B-side to UD's. I like that. Yeah, right? And
0: it's a question of, you know, do you play the A-side? Do you like, are you an A-side person or a B-side person? Um,
1: But why would you – what would you explain to people as to why we did breakfast, lunch, and dinner compared to Ugly Delicious because UD is a very different shoot?
0: Very different. I think – I mean it really happened because Netflix said, can we do more more of the same but different? You know, can we do something that has the DNA of Ugly Delicious but just try packaging it, you know, so it's like a – can you turn a burrito into a taco, you know, kind of thing. And so it was kind of our experiment to try something different. And we learned so much. I mean, it was really fun to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But also hard. (laughs) Hard. Hard for you. (laughs) I actually think it's harder for you, and I think ugly is harder for us. Yes. But I have to say my first love is ugly. Like, I love Ugly Delicious. You know, I love making that show, even though we – made the—we put the bar really high for ourselves. I mean, I think in the beginning, we decided we were going to do a bunch of things that people don't do. I think later we realized they don't do them because they're insanely difficult,
1: (laughs) you know, so— So what's so difficult about Ugly Delicious compared to other other documentaries or docu-series that you've been associated with?
0: So normally on a food show, you don't globetrot constantly in every episode. Typically, you go to one place— and you talk about it for a week and you shoot in one place for a week and you're done. Like that's why all food shows work that way. What we decided to do was so crazy and ambitious that um, that I think it took us months to figure out how to finally wrangle it. And it means we had to cross-board every episode. So we're shooting everything at once. You know, So it's all kind of nonlinear. Um, but I kind of love that. I love that aspect of it. But I don't know if you want to talk about – The beginning of Ugly. We've never actually talked about that. No, let's go there. I mean, this is the the first time we've really (laughs) talked about where this all came from. If you want to go back to the origins. Let's do it. Okay. You know it better than I do. (laughs) So, um, it was probably 2016 um, that I met you. (laughs) With Coach K. With Coach K. (laughs) This is the untold story of the origins of Ugly Delicious. Um, we were shooting a pilot for something with Coach K and I'd never met you and you were the guest on this pilot. And I came away from that day feeling like Dave Chang needs a TV show. (laughs) Like you were so good that day, but also like you were such a fan of Coach K's and like, it was just, it was really interesting. Um, and then coincidentally... I'd met um, Peter Meehan through Jonathan Gold, um, and we all started talking, and and I think at some point we hung out together, and watching you and Peter and other chef friends of yours and food writers get together and talk about food was a way I'd never heard before in TV programs. Like, it's basically arguing, you know, and I love argument, (laughs) and I feel like, you know, and you're very good at it. But I feel like a lot of food shows are kind of telling you the way it is. Like this is how this is supposed to be done or this is the best way to do this. And I love the fact that you guys disagreed about things. And I was like, well, can we do a show that's kind of a cultural debate show inside of a food show? And that was kind of the, the idea of what Ugly Delicious became. And, you know, if we really go into it, it was really going to be kind of a TV version of Lucky Peach, the magazine. Right you guys were working on. In
1: fact, it was going to be called Lucky Peach. It was. Netflix said. You can't call um, it that. (laughs) Unless you're Marvel Comics, we're not going to (laughs) co-brand. Basically. Yeah.
0: Um, And we had to come up with a title and you had been using that hashtag. Yes. Um, But it was this idea of doing a magazine-style show and we came up... I mean, I remember at the beginning, it was like, well, how are we going to organize episodes? And I remember somebody said, well, the the issues of Lucky Peach that sell best are the ones that are about a food. Right. <laughs> you know? So um, so we're like, okay, well, let's do tacos and pizza. We avoided ramen. We did. We talked about it at great length. But we felt like... We can
1: always go back there. We can
0: go back to it. It's definitely on the list of things. But, but that it was this way of Trojan horsing into doing something bigger, but through something that seems really accessible, you know, and who doesn't want to watch an episode about tacos. But I think what we decided in the beginning was that underneath each of those episodes, there was going to be a big idea that we never even articulated that we were investigating, you know, and I think, you know, I don't even know if you know all the ideas. No, I, <laughs> so.
1: I mean, <clears throat> the whole process was different. I think it was really hard to start. Um, basically merging two different cultures together but also like i don't think the show happens without you right um because <laughs> it's something that we had been toying around for a while and then when <clears throat> we talked to netflix and we're like well morgan wants to do this project and they're like okay now we, now it can happen <laughs> <laughs>
0: I had to make you because you had talked to netflix before we hooked up and yeah, I and think they were we were of, trying to do they were a lucky kind of lukewarm, show. and then yeah, yeah, we tried give, to do a, a show credit. on the
1: Chinatown issue. That's right, and it just didn't happen. And then they gave us a whole list of people to come back to, and that was the beautiful thing about working with Netflix was it was this dialogue it was like, hey, we like this, come back, come back, and and once we thought that oh, this is this is the winning combination, they literally like this is what we wanted you guys to to get to. And then merging how you worked with whatever we were doing, it was just a very strange thing because we didn't know how to make film per se. Mm -hmm. And I I remember in the beginning, like
0: having these kind of heated (laughs) discussions with everybody. And at at one point, I remember walking out and I was standing there with Peter and he said, if you just want to run for the hills now and quit, (laughs) I don't blame you. (laughs) But I didn't, you know, and it's part of that friction that I thought was really interesting. And I think one thing I really believe from the beginning was that it really should be more of a documentary. So we decided in the beginning there was going to be no voiceover. That was
1: <clears throat> very hard to do and still hard. I don't yeah. think people realize how much more difficult we make it for ourselves by not having voiceover. Like I think people are so accustomed to having voiceover in any kind of travel docu-series. Is it that much harder to film? So much harder. But I people mean, don't know that.
0: No. I mean, what we did is we would sometimes interview you or other people and use that kind of in place of narration, but it's, it's both more real, but also just messier. Like, it's just not as efficient as what voiceover does. And part of it is also, I think, like the, a couple of times we need you to, do to read something and you were just horrible at it. <laughs>
1: yeah, I can't do scripted. Anyway. No,
0: but I think you've actually gotten so much better because of this podcast. Okay, you know, even hearing how you uh, <laughs> read your sponsor, you know, it's intros. It's like,
1: oh, it's gotten so much better. So, but I remember those early ones, and Morgan was like, "Wow, no, this isn't going to work at all um, because it's not that easy. Just no, just reading something to make it sound like you're having a conversation is very difficult." It is. and But another thing I think we decided in
0: the beginning was that if we could put you in situations where you were getting schooled. You love that. <laughs> love it. You know, whenever there's a scene where somebody says, Dave, you're full of shit. Yep. That's a great scene. You, you giggle. Um, but I think it, it's a good engine both because you are so knowledgeable in so many things, but you're so willing to kind of put yourself out there and put your ignorance out there. You know, like in this – Upcoming, you know, (laughs) Indian food episode we have of season two, you know, where you basically admit in the beginning that I don't know shit about this. Right. I think that's a great
1: place to begin. Yeah, I think you were trying to find some test subject that was willing to just be a crash test dummy in a lot of different ways, and you found one for sure. And having done some TV before, and you know, the only TV we did really was with ZPZ and Tony doing Mind of a Chef, which was actually ironically Lucky Peach. Before it became my new yeah. chef again, because that never happened. Um, I never really ever did TV, having done bits and pieces over the years. And I was <clears throat> really struck with, and I would have conversations with people like, "Hey, how how's filming going that that first season?" And I was like, "I don't really know because I'm really frustrated because Eddie Schmidt, who worked on the first yep. season showrunner in show season runner. one, who did a great job, <clears throat> and Morgan are." intentionally keeping me in the dark on so many things. (laughs) And I was so frustrated because I want to accumulate as much information as possible before going into something. I I learned a lot about that because you kept saying, how am
0: I doing? How how was that scene? I was like, that was good. And you're like, (laughs) finally, you're like, stop telling me good things. I just want to hear bad things. Yeah. I was like, that says a lot about you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But even like the prep for a show, like, hey, Dave, this is what we're going to let you know. About what you're going to get into for the most part. I have an yeah. idea, but what I really appreciate about what you and Eddie wanted to do that first season was it was like true documentary. It was this is how it's going to unfold and we're not really going to control anything. It's just going to happen. Yeah. And you shot a, we shot a lot of film. We did, although
0: there weren't that many scenes we shot that didn't end up making the season. I mean, less than 10, I think, over the entire season. And part of it was like us figuring out the types of scenes that work best, how you bet work best with other people, how we're going to involve other people
1: as kind of how do I work best with other people? um, because he's seen a lot of my face, and I voice. think
0: <laughs> yeah, I think when I am going in to shoot a scene with you and somebody else, I typically say to the other person, "Just talk to Dave like he's your obnoxious older brother, <laughs> like feel free to give Dave shit." <laughs> because I think people might be intimidated and you have strong opinions. And I think it works best when somebody pushes back with their own strong opinions. Um, So I love those scenes. Um, But I will say, even though we formulated a lot of this in the dark from you, all the episodes stemmed from things you were interested in or things you were excited about. Like, I want to know more about this. I don't really understand this. How do I learn more about it? And I think that Became even truer in season two. I think it all came out of you having a genuine interest because there were other episodes we wanted to do. Right. That you weren't having, you right. know, that we thought would be great episodes. You know, like uh, coffee, coffee, hot sauce. Hot sauce. Yeah. That was it. Hot <laughs> sauce. We still could do hot sauce. I, I would love to do that, that episode. And you just, I just wasn't feeling it. And then I remember at some point deep in season two, you're like, why didn't we do hot sauce? <laughs> like, God it, damn it, Dave. Because
1: we were knee-deep in steak episode, and I was like, oh, my God. This is so much harder than I thought it was going to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to do something easy. And I think that was one of the reasons why we all gravitated towards breakfast, lunch, and dinner was ugly, delicious, and I way more for the production side. It was so hard. It was It's a really hard shoot. Yeah. And okay. people are like, why don't you just uh, – Why isn't it coming out faster or why isn't there season three? I was like, man, you have no idea how much work goes into this.
0: But I say as a filmmaker, I find Ugly Delicious a lot more rewarding, you know. I mean it's – because breakfast, lunch, and dinner is essentially a kind of hybrid food show, travel show, interview show, and you're the interviewer. I feel like Ugly Delicious is much more of a dialogue with a bunch of people including the filmmaker and you and everybody working on it together from many different sides. So it's a lot more complicated, but
1: I I, have more fun doing ugly delicious because it's not all on, on me more or less.
0: It's true. It's not. (laughs) And I remember, um, I mean, you did a lot of traveling this season, but I do remember, you know, the other surrogates, I guess you call them. I mean, Chris Ying, um, uh, Deep. Helen Rosner, Deep, you know, there were a lot of other people that came in
1: to kind of help. Because I couldn't do all the travel either. You couldn't. Because Grace was, that last month, I was just sort of trying to get be grounded as much as possible because Grace was due at any time. So there was a lot of last-second rejiggering. Yeah, I remember, uh, like, Dave, how do you feel about going to Beirut right now?
0: <laughs> You're like, uh, Grace is having a baby in three weeks. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I, I think us kind of cracking
1: that format was really was fun um but I we still a lot of travel but I was really thankful yeah. for all the people that pinch hit. Yeah. And I think it made this season way better because of it. Yeah. I mean
0: it's it's great um I just had had coffee with Helen Rosner from the The New Yorker and she's in the steak episode and she's great and uh she said ah, i love dave i love because i love difficult men <laughs> <laughs> um but like she's a great surrogate. all all these people who kind of who've filled into this role to make it much more of a dialogue it's yeah. not just you opining about what you think about the world at all
1: no and, and it saved my ass on travel like i was i was so burned out <laughs> i was so
0: burned out on travel i couldn't do it well the other thing that happened this season is i remember Between seasons, you called me and said, we're going to have a baby. Yeah. And I said, Dave, call me back in five minutes. And I have that app where you can record phone calls. So I turned it on and I said, Dave, tell me again. And then we talked for like an hour. Yeah. And the beginning of this episode is that conversation we had the moment you told me. And in that conversation, I said, we have to do an episode about this.
1: And then – I said, hold up, we have to ask Grace. And then you had a, I think, did you fly in to meet Grace or did you have a conversation with her? On I the talked phone? to her on the phone. And if she didn't see the first season, which is the Thanksgiving Day, which is really the homecoming episode, I don't know if she should, she would have said yes. So that was like, I was like, ah, Morgan, I don't think she's going to say yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but she's a star too. She's, she's great. A star. Yeah. She is great. And it's great to see you in that dynamic. You know, it's not... Literally not knowing anything. Not knowing anything. It's always always good to see you in the fish out of water, but also, like, the softer side of
1: Dave. Yeah. Hopefully there's been a little maturity and wisdom over, uh, accumulating over the years, but... Uh, but I think this baby episode, to me, it's my favorite
0: thing we've done with Ugly Delicious.
1: It was nerve-wracking to do because... This season, again, including BLD, which was shot in between ugly, delicious travel schedules. It was a lot. It was just, and we were opening up a bunch of restaurants, so I was really in the weeds. And I was so nervous about having Grace's pregnancy documented. Um, And I think it was the most terrified Grace and I have ever been about anything. And then when we saw the first cut, which was like, Almost like a hundred minutes. It was long. Mm-hmm. I just remember we were both crying because we we're like, oh my God, this this is this is like beautiful. And we're so honored that you were able and the whole team were able to make it. And um yeah, I, I'm I'm still like, oh my God, this is gonna be out there in the world. I know. And this is very in a matter terrifying. of hours. Yeah, in a matter yeah. of hours that I'm really nervous because it's one of the most intimate personal things and i think that grace wanted to talk about it from this only happened because of grace because i think the pregnancy for her empowered her to talk about the struggles that she was going through and um i think it, it it came out great but i i i get it i mean as somebody that
0: makes documentaries you know trust is the coin of the realm you know it's the most important thing and what you gain with that trust is vulnerability yeah and you Totally gave it. So thank you, Dave.
1: (laughs) I don't know how to not do that. That's, I think, why you like working with me. Yeah, it is. It is. (laughs) Which goes to one of the things that, you know, for me working together is I – there are moments where we have had to plan in the script. And I don't gel well with those moments.
0: (laughs) Whether it's – I mean, I even just remember in the um, (laughs) – when we were shooting the – where you cut your thumb off. Oh, right. uh, The top of the fried rice episode. And we wanted you to give this kind of new agey um, – I was so mad. And I, we had this thing written and you just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it.
1: Because I just can't do – I'm not a good actor. I can't act. We, I know that. <laughs> I know
0: that. <laughs> I mean I think the the only time I saw you really lose your shit was when we were shooting the debate yeah. for the stuffed episode of season one. And we wanted you to dress up like a college preppy debater. Like uh,
1: Rushmore. Yeah. Khakis, blue yeah. blazer. And I think I was triggered just because of high school, because yeah. that's what I had to wear. But man, I was so pissed because I had to wear – I was like, I don't even own a pair of khakis. I have to- <laughs> I know. And we kept saying, we'll get you khakis. And you
0: – I know there was something about that. The khakis was yeah. just – I can laugh about it
1: now, but I was like so unhappy at that moment. Yeah.
0: But sure. it, it's funny just knowing we're going to talk about this today um, – Over the past two days, I went back and watched a couple of the episodes of season one, which I haven't watched since it came out. And I was like, damn, this is good. (laughs) You know, um, it's wildly ambitious, but that's what I like about it. And it's also, I think another thing we talked about is it's not precious. Like it's, it's loose in a way that, I mean, I kind of, we talked about this kind of like punk ethos of like, there's a a sense of kind of trying things and really not being afraid to fail mm-hmm. and just letting it really be a little messy.
1: Right. Well, that's the one thing I wanted to bring up because it dawned on me however it was edited and then <clears throat> you know, consumed <laughs> by people. It feels like the audience that watches these kinds of shows have been so acclimated and, and accustomed to like clean cut editing and this is how it is and when we left in two things that i still get a lot of shit about is me being mad about the pizza delivery guy from domino's and no morgan and i didn't get any equity in domino's yeah. louis <laughs> people were like oh you must i was like no we didn't get paid it's just all trying to prove a point and i lost my temper at the end because i'm like i don't want to do this anymore dressed up as a domino driver we could have cut that out oh yeah we're like we want to leave that in because it's honest it's honest and then when i spit out the food in uh in beijing at the royal temple like the royal food place which was i was like man we have to leave this in because i think it's important for me to show to the rest of the world that someone that travels that's a chef has still a hard time eating other things i'm not just someone that can eat whatever they want and i thought that my internal goal was if I can get to a point where I can appreciate this, it means I really understand Chinese culture. And I felt like a total jackass spitting it out. But it was like two options. If I spit it out or I, I might vomit, that would be worse. So I asked respectfully, but I got just destroyed by people. And I was like, we could have edited that out. Yeah, so how do you explain have. this to well, people?
0: Well, it's somebody who makes documentaries, you know, it's not about polishing the personality of your host and making them infallible. It's the fallibility that makes them interesting and relatable. And I remember a bunch of those little moments, you know, which you're like, I can't believe you put that in. But you were game to go along on that ride. But I think it's those things. If we're honest about those things, then people trust you for when you say things that they may not totally understand. You know, they understand there's kind of an honesty between us and the viewer. Like we're not selling you a polished turd. You know, like this is a real representation of the experience we had when we did these things. And I think
1: that was just important to you as someone that tries to tell a perspective of the truth that's being unfolding, right? Like,
0: Absolutely. I mean, the big thing for me was in the um, shrimp and crawfish episode. Oh, man. So that was originally just a shrimp episode. Yeah. That was going to be about Houston. And then we were shooting for the fried chicken episode in New Orleans, and we went out. We Went to Galatoire's. To Galatoire's, and <laughs> they just pounded us with food and alcohol.
1: But that story was true. I, they wouldn't let me in, let us in without jackets. And, and that was another thing that you did. Like, hey, just record it on your phone. I did. <laughs>
0: I shot that stuff on my phone. And you taught me to shoot horizontally. <laughs> yes. And I think I was drunker than you were. We got pretty drunk. Yeah. And then we ended up at this crawfish place. Yeah. And then spontaneously, the next day, the guy— who we met, who is the waiter there, took us to the the other crawfish right. place, um, the Viet Cajun place. And it the whole episode morphed based on what happened. And I I love that happening like we, we, in production.
1: None of that was – if it
0: seems like it was not planned, it was 100% not planned. <laughs> no, but it, that being nimble that way, it's like what's really happening? I mean that's always the thing I like is not not the plan but, but what you're actually interested in when you get there.
1: And people are still mad about that episode. Like people from New Orleans are really mad that we talk poorly about the crawfish boil itself and that like how dare we not cherish the Vietnamese culture that's in New Orleans. Like that's not what we were trying to do. It was simply questioning, you know, tradition and how do you preserve it yet allow for newness to happen as well.
0: Well, and that's one of those kind of unspoken themes of the episodes. I mean – tradition, authenticity, immigration, race, like different episodes ended up being about some bigger idea
1: i mean how how do you want to talk about the fact that it wasn't a perfect thing? Yes, we have one hundred percent rotten tomatoes. There was a lot of criticism that you mean it was not perfect yeah, it's not yeah. perfect it wasn't as inclusive as it could have been, and all
0: of these but, things and but like I said, to me, the messiness was part of the intent you know that you and I have both done things that are very polished at different times, you know. If that's the intent. Right.
1: And I know that we talked about it at, at length and we're like, we just – we have to do better and we will. And But I think for me, without trying to mansplain it, I was internally just like, man, I know what we were trying to do. And that was the last thing we wanted anyone to feel. Yeah. I mean I
0: – I know. I think you feel that more than I feel oh, yeah. that. You know, and you probably hear that <coughs> more than I hear that. Um, I mean – the thing I'm proudest of of that show is, I. It's hard to think of another show on television that has featured more Asian American culture, right? Than than our show, Isaac.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> you have know, a microphone. Yeah, I do. What do you think about that whole statement that Morgan just said? Because Isaac's Korean American, that we need to sort of don't have the the platform is. What would you think about this?
2: I think within the Asian American community, we celebrated that. At a certain point though, I guess you expect that out of a a David Chang media venture. So maybe that's why it was kind of glossed over. But yeah. Your fault,
1: Dave. Yeah. Usually it is.
2: <laughs> at least uh, at least for me and the Asian Americans in my life, we definitely talked about it, about how great it was to see you know, Alan Yang on screen and a bunch of Asian faces that you normally would not see and a perspective that normally would not have been told.
1: But uh, it's crazy to think that it happened and that people still watch it. And then we got the opportunity to do Ugly Delicious Season 2. And what made this season so different than Season 1? Because BLD was still four episodes. So yeah. that was like really all in. It's a A and B season, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, and... I should point out a couple of people that helped, you know, Eddie Schmidt, the showrunner and director on season one who worked with us, Dara Horanblas, who was the showrunner in season two, Jason Zeldis, who edited and directed episodes both seasons, um, you know, Blake Davis. And then, of course, you know, Peter Meehan and then Chris Yang on this season and Chris Chen, all, all the people. You know, who actually helped make this show. It's easy for Dave and I to sit here and act like we do it by ourselves. We do. We, we do
1: talk about how we actually do it all by ourselves. But. Okay. No, <laughs> just just me and an iPhone. That's all we need. <laughs> and then, I don't know. I felt that the season was very different. Is it, And you said it was going to be because we had a better idea of what to do. I actually,
0: I think one thing that was different was that in season one, we actually did cuts of – I don't, four or five of the episodes before we showed you a frame. I remember you came over to my house with Grace and we watched the cuts and you know, I'm just chewing my fingernails in the back of the room. (laughs) Um, And it played great. And I think there was some concern of you not seeing yourself on camera just to preserve. It was going so well from our point of view that we were afraid of you saw yourself that you would modulate your performance, you know, in some way, and it would or you would become more self-conscious. Um, did that happen? No. No. <laughs> but what did happen, I think, through the whole experience, was in season two, you took more ownership over, particularly just the the ideating of what the episodes were going to be about, you know, like what what am I really trying to say here? What am I really excited about? And so we had a lot of deep conversations with all of us the whole team of people.
1: <clears throat> this was a hard it was hard. The whole thing was hard, I think. Yeah. Um I don't know why I think it was Hugo being born and I just was my my head was all over the place. And I think a lot of the travel <clears throat> from doing BLD, I mean we, when we did the Cambodia episode, I told you I think I lost my fucking mind.
0: I think you did too. I really <laughs> lost my mind. We were there New Year's Eve in Cambodia holiday in Cambodia and uh it was the first episode we did and we were trying to figure out how it was going to
1: work and it was fucking crazy it was so hard and I was like oh my god this is exactly like shooting apocalypse (laughs) too much money too much time u.s interference leads to bad things and you know Kate McKinnon was so great and
0: so generous and put up with so much of our bullshit oh to kind of what get a, our sea what legs amazing person uh, she was so great um because it was wildly ambitious how much we were gonna do um, <laughs> none of us have been there <laughs> no, we didn't know, and it was the only episode we did where um
1: none of us had been there before yeah it was the jet lag was real, it was very difficult, and i I don't know what I was doing, but simultaneously I was reading two books that I shouldn't have. And I've already blocked out the book about Cambodian history that just made me intensely depressed. Yeah. And for whatever reason I was reading Schopenhauer, which is probably yeah. the most pessimistic depressing <laughs> books of philosophy you could possibly read.
0: Yeah, you shouldn't be reading those things. No. Not be- not before a shoot because you have a natural tendency to go dark yeah. sometimes. And uh there were a number of scenes that we started shooting Cambodia and, you know, you'd start talking about genocide in the first 30 seconds. <laughs>
1: like, that's I just,
0: typically where you end the interview. You don't begin the I really scene on genocide. My,
1: I really lost my mind. I mean, I'm serious. I think I was just fucking insane for 72 hours. Um, that took out, that was hard. That was like not what I wanted to do to start off. And no. the reason I had to bring up BLD because we were shooting that like in between time. Ugly Delicious. Yeah. And oh man, that was fucking hard. And
0: I think we learned that we could do less, or we could spread it out. I mean, we did a couple of like eighteen-hour days of shooting there, and it was <laughs> it was nuts. And we kept adding shoots, like the shoot with the the dance troupe was something literally that got added after dinner because like Kate a,
1: wanted to see it.
0: Yeah, she had mentioned it, and we're like, oh, we got him. It's eleven p.m. at the theater on the other rain. side of town in the rain. So let's drive out there and get that. So it just became these insane days.
1: So now that like BLD came out a few months ago, and then you have you know Ugly Delicious season two coming out. It's really crazy to see two bookends of the same process. Um, and I yeah. think I think the initial idea, a little bit with BLD,
0: was you know we talked about the trip movies, mm. you know which which I love. Um, I love Steve Coogan. And we said, well, let's shoot them a little more cinematically, and we shot it anamorphically, and we tried to make it a little more movie-like. Um, and that just made it more difficult. From the production point of view, it was insanely difficult to be doing that. <laughs> you know, it really was Apocalypse Now. Um, but we we survived it. And I think by the end, by the last BLD we shot, which – was, uh, well, that was the Los Angeles episode. Yeah. And so that was kind of a, more of a hometown yeah, episode yeah. anyway. So much, much easier. And, and Lena and I, you know, had a
1: rapport. But um yeah, it was all different. So that's why it's like replaying what happened in season one of Ugly Delicious, replaying BLD. To me, it's all interconnected yeah. to talk about season yeah. two. Well, and we went straight from Cambodia to Vancouver. Oh my God, you're right. So, so dude, the travel schedule was crazy. Yeah, so
0: straight... <laughs> To Vancouver to shoot with Seth Rogen.
1: Then we and, went to Tokyo and then India right after that, right? Yeah, something crazy
0: like that. But the Seth episode, I think we got into a groove. Yes. We shooting. And Jason Zeldes directed that episode. And and it's just,
1: really? maybe it, maybe you just need to be stoned. I think Rogen. I need to be stoned every, I need to make a, a puff of Seth's joint every hour. <laughs> That's good gear. Yeah. Yeah. And then how did the topics for season two happen? Like it was the
0: same sort of approach. We brainstormed up a bunch of things. And part of it is really what are the kinds of stories you want to tell? We talked a lot about um, the quote unquote Middle East, which, you know, and but doing something around. We didn't know how to
1: approach that. That no, was a very difficult. And it's,
0: it's been, you know, I think when we were doing season one was in the middle of when Syria was really flaring up in a big way. And and I would done documentaries relating to that and and you were starting to cook food um influenced by
1: well yeah we the really did sort of like cover that whole sort of genesis of how we even got there because i i didn't want to just put ingredients from syria on a menu i wanted to really truly understand it as best i could and that's not going to happen in two months just because i see something in the news and I I don't even understand how it turned into vertical spit cooking. Did I did I just say like we have to do it vertical spit cooking? It was not call, it was called like Mediterranean, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, first. I think there's like a working so. title, trying to figure out what it was gonna be.
0: And we talked about hummus, you know, and there's a whole hummus story oh, right. to, you know, and it's not like this whole region only deserves one episode. I mean, you could do an entire series about it. And I love that food so much and that culture. Um but I think It was also – it's interesting because you were really actively as a chef thinking about vertical spit cooking too. Mm -hmm. And so that part of your creative process dovetailing with this cultural story was what I think worked best for the episode and why we kind of went in that direction. And I was
1: really trying to figure – on all the episodes really was a very personal journey for me Um, and that – where we came out on the other end on the, on the, as the meat turns, sort of the play on soap operas, I was again very, very proud of because we didn't have any idea that's how it was going to be when we started. But that's
0: the best documentary stuff All for right. me. It's like stepping off a cliff and hoping to catch an updraft. But you do it enough and like you start to trust that it's going to come.
1: And what would you just quickly go over yeah. like, what do you think the, 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 the through line is for that episode is uh food from <clears throat> that region and we still I still don't even know what the proper name for that is cuz you can't call it the middle east anymore
0: no you can uh,
1: it's not it's not mediterranean it, is doesn't say anything and
0: persian doesn't
1: count and, and that's I, different persian's just a subset right. you know so that's why I still have a hard time. I don't think you can put it into just one short word, right? Because yeah. that whole region deserves better, quite frankly. Yeah, but it, you know, it's about um,
0: how most people both are aware and think about that region because of its strife and what we hear in the news. We also understand it through the food. You know, I stopped at a kebab shop last night. You know, it's. And it's it feels like we have these two different understandings, and like how do we have a deeper understanding of what that actually means rather than just us eating a kebab um what does that actually say about the history of this place, and going to places like you know Istanbul, which is one of the most amazing
1: food it's, cities on it's earth, my favorite food place and right it's now.
0: but it's also the moment where Europe meets. Asia. It's the hub of the Silk Road trading route. You know, it's it's a place that's been doing this for a really long time. And it kind of symbolizes so much of what I think you think about food, you know.
1: And it's not about vertical spit cooking. It was just one way to talk about, okay, like if this can be accepted and we know that it's a great way of cooking, then why isn't it more, you know, widely accepted? So – you know, when I think about that episode, it's like it's pretty complex.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really proud
1: of that episode. Too. No, and
0: I am too. And it echoes your experiencing experience of kind of Asian immigration too and cultural perceptions and all those things. You and know, having I,
1: deep in the Syria – I mean uh, going to Beirut, uh, I thought was just the – that's a whole other angle. I don't know if people are always going to pick up on that – Here's a war refugee from Vietnam talking to war refugees. Yeah. Uh, Which is why
0: we had Deep Go on that trip, you know, that there the were so many
1: similarities. It was, that was so awesome. And I just want, I'm glad we're talking because I want people to like pick up on that and know, like, oh, this is, this is, this is a universal problem here.
0: And that's part of what we've done with the show that is just unusual. You know, right. Like having Netflix give us the money. To go and send people on these adventures to have cultural conversations and eat
1: food she was the best person to talk about that because we who else was going to talk about being a you know immigrant war refugee yeah being displaced so that, no. that was cool. The steak episode was probably to me the hardest one you did struggle with I was that so one. fucking hard now it's very clear as to what it was but I was really working through what that thesis was because I remember having some
0: Conversations when you were struggling with it in the middle of it.
1: Because I was like, I fucked up. We should have done hot sauce <laughs> or coffee. <laughs> yeah I was so pissed off at myself.
0: And I'm trying to remember. I mean, we.
1: I just thought it was dumb. I thought I was like, this is so redundant. And it's obviously so clear that this is stupid. So why are we doing this? And I took. I felt like I just ruined it for everyone. And then it no, came but then out we great. got. Yeah, we got through it yeah.
0: though to the other side where it actually got more interesting again
1: and the weird thing to me is i was able to come out with a a, a thesis for me that is a, a working thesis that i think has been in, instrumental in how i think about basically everything right now is you know you can't really judge someone by what they eat really you can but on another level you can't tell someone that their nostalgia is wrong You just can't. That's like telling someone their religion is wrong. You can't. That's a leap of faith.
0: And I remember you calling at some point and saying some version of this and saying, oh, this is what I need to say at the end of the episode.
1: Because it was really Mm -hmm. hard working through that. It was so hard. And I'm I'm grateful to have gone through that because I think it's made me a better person, more empathetic. And, you know, the whole other angle of that steak episode was like, it's like have and have nots and be careful of what kind of soapbox you're on and judging people. But ultimately too, it's like, I feel like it's caused me to reassess how we should dine and, and celebrate over things and mm-hmm. um, that you can't eliminate suffering. Right. In, in some form or fashion, it's yeah. important thing to have to, to be able to appreciate the good and, I don't know how clear that is, running throughout the episode, but it certainly was going through my mind.
0: Yeah, and I think it's something that's actually come up in a number of different episodes. But that we have normalized food that was really meant to be the kind of the special food, the food you would maybe eat once, once a year, or once at most once a week. You know, from fried chicken was eaten. You know, right on a Sunday. It was only a Sunday meal. It's not an everyday food. Or um you know in the american south but that we now just expect to go eat steaks every day and we can go eat sushi every day and we can eat fried chicken every day and we tend to forget the kind of the not just the sacrifice but the kind of the cultural yeah and environmental cost of eating that way too
1: and uh and then being able to eat at annie's and just you know that line of the you know, what is community? I mean, what is dining without community? Like that is, in some ways, like that steak episode could have been a whole series in my opinion too. Um, and all the episodes could be. Um, but there was, um, there's a lot packed into that. There's so much mm-hmm. packed in the steak episode. Actually, all of them. I know. I They're very dense.
0: I love this new season. So I hope people watch it. <laughs> Uh, What's it's the third really one? Really good. Third one is uh, oh, don't call it curry. So the India episode. So you had never been to India before, no, and talked about it for years. Mm-hmm. And so, how did that idea get? I mean, I think that from the beginning we had kn- we knew that was a big target for us.
1: We just didn't know how to approach it. Yeah, because you can't sort of just say like this is not one season. You
0: could do no. like fifteen seasons endlessly. Of it. But I think in the beginning, even in season one, you said you know the the embodiment of ugly delicious food is Indian food. One hundred percent. Yeah. So how do we how do we start to get into that? You know, we didn't have ten episodes to do India. You know, and I think what we're doing with that episode is starting conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, not finishing them. And I'm really proud of that episode too.
1: Actually, I think it's really great. I mean, again, it's not the definitive anything. It's just starting a conversation. Again, from where I started to where I ended, I think the biggest thing for me was coming to the realization that from my perspective as a Korean-American, from a Western point of view, I want to put everything in a nice, tidy box so everyone can see it and understand it. And why it's sort of the perfect symbol of what I think Ugly Delicious is is It's Indian food will never allow that to happen. It's just not what it is because it's older, it's more varied, and has just a deeper historical like tradition than any other food culture around, in my opinion. I mean, I don't know if that's fact, but I think that is. Well, and part of that that I
0: didn't appreciate at all was how deep so many of the flavors
1: the world enjoys all come from there. Right. So we left really thinking, wow. I know, I I didn't think that India won, (laughs) yeah. right? I left thinking like, oh, this is a culture that has been appropriated, blah, blah, blah. But I think Indian food, I really believe this, Indian food won, we just haven't realized it. Yeah. Mainly because maybe India hasn't received the financial benefits of winning, right?
0: But most of us are eating food full of Indian DNA already.
1: And getting the... Really, the 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 moment where I'm with Asha Gomez in uh, Kerala, uh, tasting black mm. pepper for the first time was like that. Reaction is a true "Oh my fucking god, what just happened?" moment for me, because in that moment, it was like a like a like a stream of consciousness yeah. <laughs> moment where I just could see things pretty clearly as to how everything played out. And I was like, "Oh, this connects the dots to so many things, and it makes so much more sense." Yeah. Because I could I couldn't stop thinking about, oh, what was food in Europe in the 14th century? It must taste like total shit. Yeah. And this put everything in 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 color. It gave flavor to something that tasted terrible before. So of course it was gold. And of course this is why people coveted India.
0: Yeah. And and we talk about some of the kind of even just in terms of curry, the kind of diaspora yeah. of curry through the world too. You know, and and we talk a lot about, about how the West has taken some of those things, but even looking at how all of Asia has taken those flavors and how much of Asian food is based on those flavors.
1: It's, it's, um, it deserves more. There needs to be more series dedicated to that, and I just left with a complete appreciation and awe of what Indian food is because you can't. It's just too diverse. There's things I did, didn't did make the final edit, too, like the Chinese-Indian cuisine Um, I'm glad we did the wedding because that blew my mind too just to see the scale oh my lord that was that was so crazy to me how that was done and how delicious it was and they fed 2,000 people in like an hour yeah it's amazing so that was that was a lot of fun so what do you think you've learned
0: from doing television how do you what do you what do you do now that you maybe didn't know in the beginning
1: um This is funny. I talk to Yang about this all the time. I think this ties into me realizing that television, whatever you do and however you do it, whether it be documentaries or some kind of scripted show or something that is more, you know, Hollywood-like keeping up with the Kardashians, whatever perspective you're putting out in the world, it only sort of, um, it flashes the lights to pay attention to your perspective more than anyone else's perspective. And I think you have to be very wary of... That that and realizes that, like, that's just one perspective. And more and more, the older I get, as cliche as it sounds, the less confident I am in any position I'm in. And two, everything to me is a cubist perspective of something mm-hmm. that your perspective is your perspective. Your job is to try to see and use your empathy to see as many perspectives as possible. And, and it's more like a Doppler radar effect. You can't really say anything's true other than, like, that whole thing is true, but you can't say, your perspective is wrong because given some time and maybe some anecdotes, you might see differently. So, uh, getting to do this with you and how you try to tell your, ver- you've always said that your version of the truth is not like yours, not trying to be truthful, but it's like your perspective, and that's not lost on me. So, doing TV with you has helped me sort of. Again, I always use this in my head as like Doppler radar. That's what I think you're trying to go for with a documentary. You're not trying to say, this is my perspective and this is what you need to see. It's like, hey, maybe this is going to shake your perspective in a way so you can see, pan out a little bit further and realize there's this giant other thing that's happening. And there's no right or wrong. Well, I guess there is a right. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe,
0: you know, but, but I think it's one of the things in the beginning. I mean, my dark secret. I don't know much about food, you know, that I felt like what interested me and has always interested me is culture. And food is perhaps the most fundamental part of culture. It's how we define ourselves. It's how we define the other. And I feel like it's it's an incredibly powerful tool to talk about these deeper issues. Plus, you guys know food so thoroughly that I felt like my job was the storytelling part and to make sure that we were making a show that people who maybe didn't care that much about food would want to watch. That's the goal, right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's never preaching to the converted. You know, I love to make things for people
1: I don't agree with. Do you think that there's, what's next for Ugly Delicious then? There's obviously more topics.
0: I mean, there are a bunch of topics we've talked about. And they're also just ideas
1: to explore, too. We 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 have been, to the audience, toying around the idea of doing a more longer format. Yeah. Basically a documentary, right? I mean, right? Uh,
0: something else we could... An idea we've talked about from day one that I think we want to tackle someday is sushi. 100%, yes. I think there's a lot to be said. <laughs> there's been a lot of great stuff about sushi. Um but I think there's actually a whole other so much level more. to go to. Yes. So maybe maybe that'll happen next.
1: Like even, yes, just like Jiro. Like, yes, people think it's great, but it's only one perspective of the, the modern sushi scene in Tokyo. And there's so much there that I don't know what else. Yeah. Well, and the
0: you know, we talk, you know, food is culture, but food is also – environment it's politics it's all of these things so you know i think we've talked about all these different kinds of ideas and you know kind of understanding what's um,
1: what's more interesting me doing music or food because you do a lot you've done, historic, done a, lot a lot of music, music. documentaries yeah. um
0: i find them both really interesting
1: um I mean, if you don't realize or don't know, Morgan recently helped put out the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix as well. Um, And you should see all of his catalog of of documentaries. Made a bunch of other films. Uh, They're all great. Thank you.
0: Um,
1: Mr. Mr. (laughs) Mr. Roger, (laughs) those goes on and on.
0: No, but I think part of it is I like telling stories. I've broken down – when I've actually gone back and looked over the films I've made for 25 years, I realized there are two things they're all about. They're either about how culture connects us or they're about creative process. And often they're about both. Mm. And so I feel like this show is a chance to have both. You know, it's like right in my sweet spot of all this stuff I like to talk about. And, you know, that it's something, you know, the gift I get as a filmmaker is I get to learn. Mm. You know, I get, I've learned so much doing this show and I've learned so much from you and all the people we've met. And then to take that that wisdom and try and put it back into a show that other people can learn with. You know, like that's
1: that's why I love my job so much. <clears throat> um, what else do you have down the pipe working on? Well, that's in the pipeline. I'm
0: doing the documentary about Anthony Bourdain, as you know, because I talked to you for it. Um and that's we could probably have a bigger conversation down about that road. when the film comes down. Um, down the road next year. But I think the thing that is interesting is now working on this film and seeing how much of the thinking around the show was informed by the work he had done Mm -hmm. too. And I know you had told me right when we started ugly that you had gone to him for maybe his blessing. Right. I did. To do this. You know, because if he said no, I wouldn't have. We wouldn't have done it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it was really until I started working on this film and meeting all the people who knew and loved Tony and doing a deep dive into his shows that I realized just how much this territory he he allowed to to live. You know, and how much of the kind of context of what you do uh, was given space to to grow. When do you think, when is it scheduled to come out? 2021. So next year it'll come out, you know. And and any other projects? Some TV projects and other things. (laughs) He's he's so tight-lipped. I I love Well, you're not supposed to talk about this stuff. (laughs) Um, And hopefully we'll be able to do more stuff. Definitely.
1: I can't can't wait. Um, All right. Check out uh, Ugly Delicious Season 2, Morgan and I. And amazing cast of characters from jason and dara and chris and chris and katrin and everyone from tremolo i consider family now and and we're very proud to have this out in in the world and thank you guys thank you morgan
0: thanks dave great to see you